Section 29 of The Epidemics of the Middle Ages by Eustace Hecke Translated by Benjamin Guy Babington This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 The Fourth Visitation of the Disease, 1528-1529 Part 1 Und wenn die Welt von Teufel wär, und wollten uns verschlingen, so fürchten wir uns nicht so sehr, es soll uns doch gelingen. Luther Section 1 Destruction of the French Army before Naples, 1528 The events to which we are now about to allude demonstrate by their surprising course that the fate of nations is at times far more dependent on the laws of physical life than on the will of potentates or the collective efforts of human action and that these prove utterly impotent when opposed to the unfettered powers of nature. These powers, inscrutable in their dominion, destructive in their effects, stay the course of events, baffle the grandest plans, paralyze the boldest flights of the mind, and when victory seemed within their grasp, have often annihilated embattled hosts with the flaming sword of the angel of death. To obliterate the disgrace of Pavia, Francis I, in league with England, Switzerland, Rome, Genoa, and Venice, against the too powerful Emperor of Germany, sent a fine army into Italy. The Emperor's troops gave way whenever the French plumes appeared, and victory seemed faithful only to the banners of France and to the military experience of a tried leader. Everything promised a glorious issue. Naples, alone, weakly defended by German lansquenets and Spaniards, remained still to be vanquished. The siege was opened on the 1st of May, 1528, and the general confidently pledged his honor for the conquest of this strong city, which had once been so destructive to the French. It was easy with an army of 30,000 veteran warriors to overpower the imperialists, and a small body of English seemed to have come merely to partake in the festivals after the expected victory. The city, too, suffered from a scarcity, for it was blockaded by Doria with his Genoese galleys, and water fit to drink failed after Lautrec had turned off the aqueducts of Poggio Reale, so that the plague, which had never entirely ceased among the Germans since the sacking of Rome, began to spread. But amidst this confidence in the success of the French arms, the means for ensuring it were gradually neglected. The valor of the intrepid and prudent commander was doubtless equal to the minor vicissitudes of war. But whilst the length of the delay paralyzed his activity, nature herself suddenly proved fatal to this hitherto victorious army. Pestilences began to rage among the troops, and human courage could no longer withstand the far-shooting arrows of the god of day. The consequence was that within the space of seven weeks, out of the whole host which up to that period had been eager for combat, a mere handful remained, consisting of a few thousand of cadaverous figures who were almost incapable of bearing arms or of following the commands of their sick leaders. On the 29th of August the siege was raised, Fifteen days after the heroic Lautrec, bowed down by chagrin and disease, had resigned his breath. 
The wreck of the army retreated amid thunder and heavy rain, and were soon captured by the imperialists, so that but a few of them ever saw their native land again. This siege brought still greater misery upon France than even the fatal battle of Pavia, for about five thousand of the French nobility, some from the most distinguished families, had perished under the walls of Naples. Its remoter consequences, too, were humiliating to the king and the people. Since, owing to its failure, all those hitherto feasible schemes were blighted, which had for their object the establishment of French dominion beyond the Alps. It behooves us, therefore, to pay so much the more attention to those essential causes of this event which fall within the province of medical research. The mortality which occurred in the camp began probably as early as June, after the usual calamities which surround an army in an enemy's country. The French and Swiss were insatiable in their indulgence in fruit, which the gardens and fields furnished them in abundance, whilst there was a scarcity of bread and of other proper food. Hence fevers soon broke out, which increased in malignity the longer they existed, accompanied no doubt by debilitating diarrheas, which never failed to make their appearance under circumstances of this kind, and are in themselves among the most pernicious of camp diseases, since they not only destroy in the individual case by the exhaustion which they occasion, but likewise by infecting the air, prepare the way for the worst pestilences. The diseases were, however, little noticed, and there was consequently no attempt made to diminish their causes. It became daily more and more apparent that the cutting off of the sources near Poggio Reale, which Lautrec had commanded in order to compel the besieged to a more speedy surrender, was in the highest degree injurious to the besiegers themselves. For the water, having now no outlet, spread over the plain where the camp was situated, which it converted into a swamp, whence it rose morning and evening in the form of thick fogs. From this cause, and while a southerly wind continued to prevail, the sickness soon became general. Those soldiers who were not already confined to bed in their tents were seen with pallid visages, swelled legs, and bloated bellies, scarcely able to crawl, so that, weary of nightly watching, they were often plundered by the marauding Neapolitans. The great mortality did not commence until about the 15th of July, but so dreadful was its ravages that about three weeks were sufficient to complete the almost entire destruction of the army. Around and within the tents vacated by the death of their inmates, noxious weeds sprang up. Thousands perished without help, either in a state of stupor or in the raving delirium of fever. In the entrenchments, in the tents, and wherever death had overtaken his victims, their unburied corpses lay, and the dead that were interred, swollen with putridity, burst their shallow graves, and spread a poisonous stench far and wide over the camp. There was no longer any thought of order or military discipline, and many of the commanders and captains were either sick themselves, or had fled to the neighboring towns in order to avoid the contagion. The glory of the French arms was departed, and her proud banners cowered beneath an unhallowed spectre. Meanwhile the pestilence broke out among the Venetian galleys under Pietro Lando. 
Doria had already gone over to the emperor, and thus was this expedition, begun under the most favorable auspices, frustrated on every side by the malignant influence of the season. No medical contemporary has described the nature of this violent disease, and historians have on this point preserved only general outlines, which do not afford sufficient materials to ground an investigation. Certain it is that in the year 1528, a very malignant petechial fever extended throughout Italy, and in the proper sense of the word, prevailed so decidedly that it even followed the Italians abroad in the same way as the sweating sickness did the English, as is proved by the case of the learned Venetian Naugerio, who, being dispatched on an embassy to Francis I, died at Blois, on the Loire, of this very disease, with which the French had yet no acquaintance. Contemporaries assure us that this epidemic committed great ravages in the country, already distracted by wars and feuds, and it is therefore hardly to be doubted that occurring as it did in those same years, it was the disease of which we have been treating, the malignity of which was increased on extraordinary occasions. A pestilence which, just before the siege of Naples, destroyed one-third of the inhabitants of Cremona, was in all probability the petechial fever. Yet here and there the old buba plague made its appearance. This it was which in the year 1524 carried off 50,000 people in Milan, and this appears likewise to have been the disease which, after the sacking of Rome, broke out among the German lansquenets, and in a short time annihilated two-thirds of these troops. Contemporaries saw therein God's just punishment of their desecration of the Holy See, for in the succeeding years all the remaining participators in the storming of the Eternal City also met with an end worthy of their crimes. They did not take into account, however, the beastly intemperance and excesses of the soldiery, whose eagerness after plunder led them to encounter the plague poison in the most secret holes and corners, nor did they reflect that the plague penetrated the castle of Sant'Angelo itself, and destroyed some of the courtiers almost under the eyes of the Pope. Of these lansquenets, many went to Naples in the following year under the Prince of Orange, and it may with good ground be supposed that they took with them to that city fresh germs of plague. To which may be added the by no means incredible story that the besieged sent infected and sick soldiers to the French in order to cause poisonous pestilences to break out among them. This very circumstance tells in favor of buba plague, for the decided certainty of its contagious nature was known and seemed beyond all comparison greater than the more conditional communicability of the new disease. Moreover, the same attempt at impestation had been already often made in earlier times. It is, however, also to be considered on the other side that the French army was more exposed to the epidemic influence of the air, the water, and the general powers of nature than any other assemblage of men, and that this influence was probably more powerful in the year 1529 than at any other time during the 16th century. The formation of fog in the heat of summer is at all times an extraordinary phenomenon, which decidedly indicates a disproportion in the mutual action of the components and powers of the lower strata of the atmosphere. 
This was not dependent merely on the local peculiarities of Naples, for during the summer of 1528, grey fogs were observed throughout Italy, which rendered the unwholesome quality of the air visible to the eye. This was increased by the prevalence of southerly winds, which are always in Italy prejudicial to health, and also by the thousand privations of a camp, so that a disease which was already prevalent all over Italy, we allude to the petechial fever, might well break out on the damp soil of Poggio Reale. In the history of national diseases, we find moral proof of the predominance of epidemic influence, which plainly and intelligibly manifests itself under the greatest variety of circumstances. This is a belief that the water and even the air is poisoned. Nor is this proof wanting in the deplorable history of the French army before Naples, for it was generally believed that some Spaniards of Moorish descent, to whom was attributed an especial degree of skill in the management of poison, and some Jews from Germany, who for the sake of gain had followed the lansquenets to truckle for their booty, had stolen out of the city under cover of the night in order to poison the water in the neighborhood of the camp. It was also surmised that an Italian apothecary had administered to the French knights poison in their medicine. We will not anticipate on this occasion the researches of naturalists, whose experiments on air and water during important epidemics have not yet led to any results. It is, however, not improbable that pond and spring water, under such circumstances as are described to have occurred, might become impregnated with a noxious quality not inherent in it, which would very naturally give rise to the belief that a poison had been thrown into it. On the whole, this accusation may certainly be judged according to the same views which have been stated in our treatise on the Black Death. From all these circumstances, the notion is highly probable that it was the petechial fever which raged in the French camp and if we may attach any importance to the incidental accounts of historians, it may perhaps be to the purpose to state that Prudencio de Sandoval, who has written from authentic materials, calls the disease Las Bubas. This name, it is true, presupposes a rather strange confusion of petechial fever with Louis. And indeed the diseases among the French troops from 1495 to 1528 have been oddly jumbled together by Sandoval. It shows, however, that there still existed a recollection of the prevalent eruptions which occurred in the pestilence of 1528, and therefore this whole account might perhaps be the more justly applied to petechial fever, as this same historian states that the French called the disease after the village of Poggio Reale, Le Poche, by which name the well-known buba plague would hardly have been designated. If, however, we choose to suppose that at one and the same time different diseases prevailed in the French army, this notion is not only supported by the express testimony of a contemporary, but also by many observations, ancient and modern, that have been made in cases where the circumstances have been similar to those which then prevailed. It is ever to be regretted that there was no intelligent Machaean to be found in the camp before Naples, such a one would undoubtedly have left us some pithy observations on the combination and affinity of petechial fever and bubal plague. Section 2. Trousgalant in France, 
1528 and the following years. Deeply as the irreparable loss of such an army was felt by the French, yet were they destined to suffer still greater misfortunes at home. The dark power which threatened all Europe regarded neither distance nor limits. It seized on the French nation in their own country, whilst their military youth were destroyed before Naples. The cold spring and wet summer of 1528 destroyed the growing corn, and a famine was thus produced throughout France, even more grievous on account of its duration than the period of scarcity in the time of Louis XI, for the failure of the harvest continued for five years in succession, during which all order of the seasons seemed to have ceased. A damp summer heat prevailed in autumn and winter, a frost of a single day only occasionally intervening. The summer, on the other hand, was cloudy, damp, and ungenial. The length of the days alone distinguished one month from another. It appears plainly from detached accounts how much the usual course of vegetation was disturbed. Scarcely had the fruit trees shed their leaves in the autumn when they began to bud again and to bear fruitless blossoms. No returns rewarded the toil of the husbandmen, and the longed-for harvest again and again deceived the hopes of the people. Thus, even during the first of these calamitous years, the distress became general, and the increasing indigence was no longer to be checked by human aid. Bands of beggars wandered over the country in lamentable procession. The bonds of civil order became more and more relaxed, and people soon had to fear not only robbery and plunder on the part of these unfortunate beings, but the contagion of a pestilence, the offspring of their distress, which followed in their train. This disease was a new production of the French soil, and when it spread generally throughout the country, was the more sensibly felt as it especially carried off young and robust men, on which account it was designated by the very significant name of Trousse Galant. Note, Trousse, in an obsolete sense, signifies to cause speedy death. And note. It consisted of a highly inflammatory fever, which destroyed its victims in a very short time, even within the space of a few hours. Or, if they escaped with their lives, deprived them of their hair and nails, and from a long-continued disinclination for all animal food, left behind it, as sequelae, a protracted debility and diseases which endangered the recovery of the sick, whose constitutions were already so much shaken. Hence it appears that this fever was combined with a great decomposition of the fluids, and a very morbid condition of the functions of the bowels, not to mention the effects produced by continued hunger, which contemporaries paint in the most dreadful colors. The stock of provisions was already so far consumed in the first year that people made bread of acorns and sought for avidity all kinds of harmless roots, merely to appease hunger. These miserable sufferers wandered about houseless and more like corpses than living beings, and finally, failing even to excite commiseration, perished on dunghills and in outhouses. The larger towns shut their gates against them, and the various charitable institutions proved of necessity insufficient to afford relief in this frightful extremity. 
It was the lot of very few to obtain the tender care and attendance of the Sisters of Charity. In most of those affected, their livid swollen countenances and the dropsical swelling of their limbs betrayed the sickly condition in which they dragged on their languishing existence. Everyone fled from these pestiferous spectres, for they were saturated with the poison of this deadly disease, and their mark was no doubt made a thousand times over that this poison might be conveyed to persons in health without affecting the carrier, since want and ill health occasionally afford a miserable protection against disease of this kind. The necessary data for furnishing a complete account of the Trousse Galant of 1528 do not exist, for physicians pass over this epidemic with the same coolness and indifference which, unfortunately, they may be justly accused of having shown with respect to other important phenomena. But it returned once again in 1545-46, appearing in Savoy and over a great part of France, and we possess from Paré and from Sander, a Flemish physician, though still a defective, yet a more satisfactory description of its symptoms on this occasion. Its course was, as before, very rapid, so that it destroyed the patient in two or three days. Again it attacked the strong rather than the weak, as if in justification of its old name, and those who recovered remained for a long time distinguishable by the loss of their hair and their wretched appearance. Patients felt at the commencement an insufferable weight in the body, with extremely violent headache, which soon deprived them of all consciousness and passed into a profound stupor, even the sphincter muscles losing their power. In other cases, a continued state of sleeplessness was followed by feverish delirium, so violent that it was necessary to have recourse to means of restraint. Such opposite states are usual in all typhus fevers. Sander expressly mentions that in most of those affected eruptions made their appearance. He does not, however, state their nature or describe the course and crisis of the disease otherwise than that it terminated about the fourth or the eleventh day. Even the eruptions that did appear, which were probably Pitekie, and perhaps also Rote Friesel, red miliary vesicles, came at an indefinite period, either at the commencement when they afforded an unfavorable prognosis, or later when they betokened a favorable crisis. Threadworms in great numbers were evacuated alive under great torment, and generally increased the sufferings of the patient. The disease was scarcely less contagious than plague, and with respect to its treatment, bleeding, copious, and even ad deliquium, was decidedly successful, which, coupled with the attacks on the head just described, leads to the conclusion that there existed a fullness of blood and an inflammatory state of circulation together perhaps with inflammation of the brain. We must not omit to observe that during the pestilence of 1546, the buba plague made its appearance here and there, especially in the Netherlands, and in the following year broke out and spread to a great extent in France, whence it seems to follow, with respect to the malady of which we are now treating, that its nature resembled the petechial fever, since that disease usually precedes the occurrence of pestilences. The assertion of historians that in 1528 and the following years 
France lost a fourth part of her inhabitants by famine and pestilence, seems, according to our representation, not to be by any means exaggerated. The consequences as regarded the future destinies of that country were likewise very important. For Francis I saw that no new sacrifices could be borne by his people, who were already so sorely afflicted, and therefore abandoned his schemes of greatness and foreign power, consenting on the 5th of August 1529 to the disadvantageous Treaty of Cambrai. Section 3. Sweating Sickness in England, 1528. Whoever, following the above facts, will represent to himself the state of Europe in 1528, will readily believe that a poisonous atmosphere enveloped this quarter of the globe, and continually brought destruction and death over its nations. Ruin broke in upon them in a thousand forms, destroying their bodies and benighting their minds. And if to this we add the discord and the deadly party hatred which at that time prevailed in the world, it seems as if every circumstance that could affect mankind was implicated in this gigantic conflict, which threatened in its fatal result to annihilate all traces of the times that were past. A heavier affliction than has yet been described was in store for England. For in the latter end of May, the sweating fever broke out there in the midst of the most populous part of the capital, spreading rapidly over the whole kingdom and fourteen months later brought a scene of horror upon all the nations of northern Europe, scarcely equaled during any other epidemic. It appeared at once with the same intensity as it had shown eleven years before, was ushered in by no previous indications, and between health and death there lay but a brief term of five or six hours. Public business was postponed, the courts were closed, and four weeks after the pestilence broke out, the festival of St. John was stopped to the great sorrow of the people, who certainly would not have dispensed with its celebration had they recovered from the consternation arising from the great mortality. The king's court was again deserted, and to the various passions and mental emotions which had been clashing there since the year 1517, as for instance those arising from the theological zeal which had been excited by Henry VIII's defense of the faith, was added once more the old alarm and distress, which seemed to be justified by the death of some favorite courtiers, particularly of two chamberlains and of Sir Francis Poins, who had just returned from an embassy to Spain. The king left London immediately, and endeavored to avoid the epidemic by continually traveling, until at last he grew tired of so unsettled a life, and determined to await his destiny at Tittenhanger. Here, with his first wife and a few confidants, he resided quietly, apart from the world, surrounded by fires for the purification of the air, and guarded by the precautions of his physician, had the satisfaction to find that the pestilence kept aloof from this lonely residence. How many lives were lost in this, which some historians have called the great mortality, can be estimated only by the facts which have been stated, and which betoken an uncommonly violent degree of agitation in men's minds. Accurate data are altogether wanting, yet it is quite evident that the whole English nation from the monarch to the meanest peasant, 
was impressed with a feeling of alarm at the uncertainty of life, to which neither the rude state of society nor a constant familiarity with the effects of laws written in blood had blunted their sensibility. Such a state does not exist without very numerous cases of mortality, which bring the danger home to every individual, so that it is to be presumed that the churchyards were everywhere abundantly filled. Nor did this destructive epidemic come alone. Provisions were scarce and dear, and whilst hundreds of thousands lay stretched upon the bed of death, many perished with hunger, and the same scenes would have been experienced as in France, had not the corn trade afforded some relief. As soon as the occurrences of this unfortunate year could be more closely surveyed, a conviction was at once felt that it was one and the same general cause of disease which called forth the poisonous pestilence in the French camp before Naples, the putrid fever among the youth in France, and the sweating sickness in England, and that the varying nature of these diseases depended only on the conditions of the soil and the qualities of the atmosphere in the countries which were visited. If, in opposition to these notions, a narrow view of human life in the aggregate should raise a doubt, this would be strikingly refuted by the wonderful coincidence in point of time of all these phenomena occurring in such various parts of Europe. For while the French army, after an exposure of four weeks to the miseries and poisonous vapors of its camp before Naples, perceived the first forebodings of its destruction, the great famine with a trousse galant in its train was in full advance on the other side of the Alps, and almost on the same day the sweating sickness broke out upon the Thames. Section 4. Natural Occurrences, Prognostics the chronicles of all the nations of Europe are full of remarkable notices respecting the commotions of nature in these particular years, which were so utterly hostile to the animal and vegetable kingdoms. In England, the period of distress was already approaching towards the end of the year 1527. Throughout the whole winter, November and December 1527 and January 1528, heavy rains deluged the country, the rivers overflowed their banks, and the winter seed was thus rotted. The weather then remained dry until April, but scarcely was the summer seed sown when the rain again set in, and continued day and night for full eight weeks, so that the last hope of a harvest was now destroyed, and the soaked earth in the thick mists that arose from its surface hatched the well-known demon of the sweating disease. It was now of no avail that the torrents of rain ceased, for the softened soil gave the pestilence constant nourishment, and the damp warmth, which alternating with unseasonable cold, remained prevalent during the following years all over Europe, rendered men's bodies more and more susceptible to severe diseases. The historians of that time were too much occupied with the intricate affairs of the court and of the church to devote any attention to nature, and on this account they have left us no satisfactory information of the state of the weather and the course of the seasons of those years in England. Yet there is no reason to suppose that they were essentially different from those of the rest of Europe. This may be proved by the following collection of important natural occurrences, 
when taken in conjunction with the circumstances already stated respecting France and Italy. In Upper Italy such considerable floods occurred in all the river districts in the year 1527 that the astrologers announced a new deluge. There was a repetition of them to an equal extent and with equal damage in the following year, so that it may have been concluded, not without some ground, that there was an accumulation of snow on the highest mountain ranges of Europe. On the 3rd of July, 1529, there followed a violent earthquake in Upper Italy, and immediately afterwards a blood rain, as it was called, in Cremona. In October 1530, the Tiber rose so much above its banks that in Rome and its neighborhood about 12,000 people were drowned. A month later, in the Netherlands, the sea broke through the dikes, and Holland, Zeeland, and Brabant suffered very considerably from the overflow of the waters, which again took place two years afterwards. In 1528, there appeared in the march of Brandenburg, during the prevalence of a southeast wind and a great drought, the rains did not commence in Germany before 1529, swarms of locusts, as if this prognostic too of great epidemics was not to be wanting. Of fiery meteors, which also frequently appeared in the following years, and in the aggregate plainly indicated an unusual condition of the atmosphere, much notice, after the manner of the times, is occasionally taken. Particular attention was excited by a long fiery train, which was seen on the 7th of January 1529 at 7 o'clock in the morning throughout Mecklenburg and Pomerania. Another fiery sign, Chasma, was seen in the March on the 9th of January at 10 o'clock at night, and likewise similar atmospherical phenomena in other localities. Comets appeared in the course of this year in unusual number. The first on the 11th of August, 1527, before daybreak. It was seen throughout Europe, and has often been confounded by more recent writers with an atmospherical phenomenon resembling a comet which appeared on the 11th of October. The second was seen in July and August, 1529, in Germany, France, and Italy. Four other comets are also said to have made their appearance this year at the same time but it is probable that these were only fiery meteors of an unknown kind. The third was in 1531, and was visible in Europe from the 1st of August till the 3rd of September. This was the great comet of Halley, which returned in the year 1835. The fourth was in 1532, visible from the 2nd of October to the 8th of November. It appeared again in 1661. Lastly, the 5th, in 1533, seen from the middle of June till August. Contemporaries agree remarkably in their accounts of the insufferable state of the weather in the eventful year 1529. The winter was particularly mild, and the vegetation was far too early, so that all the world was rejoicing at the mildness and beauty of the spring. The people wore violets at Erfurt on St. Matthew's Day, the 24th of February, little expecting that this friendly omen was to precede so severe a calamity. Throughout the spring and summer, wet weather continued to prevail. 
Constant torrents of rain overflowed the fields. The rivers passed their banks. All hopes of the cultivation were entirely frustrated, and misery and famine spread in all directions. A heavy rain of four days' continuance, which took place in the south of Germany in the middle of June, and was called the St. Vitus's Torrent, is still remembered in modern times as an unheard-of event. Whole districts of country were completely laid under water, and many persons perished who had not time to save their lives. A similar, very widely extended and perhaps universal storm again occurred on the 10th of August and occasioned great floods, especially in Thuringia and Saxony. Upon the whole, the sun rarely broke through the heavy dark clouds. The latter part of the summer and the whole of the autumn, with the exception of a series of hot days which commenced the 24th of August, remained gloomy, cold and wet. People fancied they were breathing the foggy air of Britain. We ought not to omit here to notice that in the north of Germany, and especially in the March of Brandenburg, eating fish which were caught in great abundance was generally esteemed detrimental. Malignant and contagious diseases were said to have been traced to this cause, and it was a matter of surprise that the only food which nature bounteously bestowed was so decidedly injurious. It might be difficult now to discover the cause of this phenomenon, of which we possess only isolated notices. Yet, passing over all other conjectures, it is quite credible either that an actual fish poison was developed, or, if this notion be rejected, that a disordered condition of life such as must be supposed to have existed in a great famine, rendered fish prejudicial to health. In the same way as sometimes occurs after protracted intermittent fevers, when the functions of the bowels are disturbed in a manner peculiar to this disease. But it was not the inhabitants of the water alone which were affected by hidden causes of excitement in collective organic life. The fowls of the air likewise sickened, who, in their delicate and irritable organs of respiration, feel the injurious influence of the atmosphere much earlier and more sensitively than any of the unfeathered tribes, and have often been the harbingers of great danger ere man was aware of its approach. In the neighborhood of Freiburg in the Breisgau, dead birds were found scattered under the trees with boils as large as peas under their wings, which indicated among them a disease that in all probability extended far beyond the southern districts of the Rhine. The famine in Germany during this year is described by respectable authorities in a tone of deep sympathy. Swabia, Lorraine, Alsace, and the other southern countries bordering on the Rhine were especially visited so that misery there reached the same frightful height as in France. The poor emigrated and roved over the country solely to prolong their wretched existence. Above a thousand of these half-starved mendicants came to Strasbourg out of Swabia. They obtained shelter in a monastery, and attempts were made to revive them, yet many were unable to bear the food that was placed before them. Attention and nourishment did but hasten their death. 
another body of more than 800 came in the autumn from Lorraine. These unfortunate people were kept in the city and fed during the whole winter. Yet it is easy to conceive that this benevolence, which was no doubt likewise exercised in other cities, for when was humanity ever found wanting in Germany, could only occasionally alleviate this deeply rooted calamity. In the Venetian territories, many hundreds are said to have perished with hunger, and a like distress probably prevailed all over Upper Italy. In the north of Germany, including the extensive sandy plains on which wet weather is not so injurious in its effect as on a heavy clayey soil, the state of the country was upon the whole more tolerable. Yet independently of the innumerable evils to which a scarcity gives rise, suicide was more frequent, which was certainly a rarity in the 16th century, and only explicable by supposing that the powers of the mind became exhausted by the many and various passions, which in every individual locality excited a spirit of hatred and party feeling. The consequence of such a state of turmoil is a cold disgust of life, which finds in the first adverse event that may occur a pretext for self-destruction, that want alone would seldom, if ever, occasion. For man, if his spirit be unbroken, runs the chance of starvation in times of famine, and trusts to the faintest gleam of hope, rather than, of his own accord, abandon the enjoyment of life. It is no less in point here to notice a kind of faint lassitude, which, to the great astonishment of the people, was felt especially in Pomerania, in June and July, up to the very period when the sweating sickness broke out. In the midst of their work, and without any conceivable cause, people became palsied in their hands and feet, so that even if their lives had depended upon it, they were incapable of the slightest exertion. The treatment which was found successful was to cover the patients warmly and to supply them with nourishing food of which they ate plentifully, and thus recovered again in three or four days. Phenomena of this kind, which in the present instance evidently depended on atmospherical influence, are but the extreme gradations of a generally morbid dullness of vital feeling, which might easily pass into an actual disgust of life, such as would lead to suicide. The following years were by no means all marked by a complete failure in produce. The year 1530 was, on the contrary, plentiful, there being only some partial failures, as for example that which arose from a great flood in the district of the Zal, which occurred in the midst of the harvest time. A very cold spring and a wet cold summer followed in 1531, with only occasional fine days. Yet the ground was not altogether unproductive, and the great distress which would otherwise have been felt in Thuringia and Saxony was checked by the establishment of granaries, so that the people were not obliged, as they often were in Swabia, to mow the green corn that they might dry the ears in ovens and support life upon the yet unripe grain. The years 1532 and 1533 were again very sterile, as also 1534, in consequence of the great heat and dryness of the summer. Finally, in the year 1535, the regular change of the seasons 
and with it a prosperous state of cultivation, seemed to be restored and the scarcity ceased. The reports from different localities in Germany vary much, but the scarcity prevailed for a full seven years, from 1528 to 1534, and since its causes were not discoverable, because it was only seen by each observer in his own narrow circle, the old German adage was often called to mind. If there is to be a scarcity, it is of no avail even should all the mountains be made of flower. End of section 29